turn please to Mark in chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I want to begin reading actually in verse 13. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. We considered verse 13 through 16 last week, but I want to see this new passage in this context. So I'll begin reading with verse 13. Once you've found that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we've just sung that uh, our daily bread is your very word spoken to us, so I do pray that you would open then uh, our ears and our minds, our our souls, that this word would uh, sink deep, be ingested deep within us, and Father, that we would see the value of it, the fruit of it in the context of our very lives. So please, I pray now, feed us, fill us in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I won't be able to get necessarily to all of this today, but I I want to see the contrast. Because on the one hand, you have these little children coming to Jesus, and then this rich man. You've got the weakest and the one who appears to be the strongest. You have the one with no rights and the one who seems to command others. You have the ones who have no real standing in the society. Nothing really to bring. And you have, on the other hand, the one who has a great deal of status, a great deal of respect, a great deal of prominence, a great deal of wealth, a great deal to bring, if you will, on the other hand. You have the one, however, who is the exact model of receiving the kingdom of God, of entering into the kingdom of God. And you have, on the other hand, the exact model of the one who cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's as if the last becomes first and the first becomes last. You see that? Now, this man, 
comes to Jesus. He's passionate, it appears, because he appears to run to Jesus. He's respectful to Jesus because before he questions him, he falls on his knees. And when he does question him, he begins with this phrase, good teacher, and then he asks the most significant question a person can ask, and that is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He has salvation on his mind. He is entering into the kingdom of God on his mind. Jesus takes us aback a bit because he comments on the man's address. He says, why do you call me good? Don't you understand that there is no one good except God alone? Now, no doubt Jesus is setting up this man who believes himself to be good. And no doubt he's saying, Jesus, is that he is God alone. Well, Jesus says to the man, have you obeyed the commandments, essentially? And Jesus reviews some of the commandments. The man rather shocks us, though impresses us, when he says, I've obeyed all of these since I was a kid, since I was a boy, and since my youth. And so Jesus then looks at him, and the scripture says, loved him. Thus, this was no rebuke. But you get this sense of compassion. You get this sense of affection that Jesus has. With this man, perhaps even a sense of pity. He looks at him and he loves him and he says, this you lack. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And the scripture then says that the man, the man's face fell. Has your face ever fallen? You receive a package for your birthday, for Christmas. It's all wrapped up pretty, and you're so excited about what this might be. And then you open it up, and it's that proverbial gift that just doesn't fit, just doesn't look right. It's just really disappointing. And if you're giving such a gift to a child, being unhypocritical as the rest of us, their faces just fall when they open that present. Have you ever desired and had a great expectation and not be met? And you can just see it. In your face, you can feel your face falling. It's as if it was a sunny day, but gradually the clouds roll in and it darkens. And this man's face fell from this excitement, this passion, this respect, to a great expectation that Jesus is going to fulfill his wish and to tell him what to do to inherit eternal life. Now Jesus gives him something seemingly impossible to do, something he could never do. And you can sense the dissonance in the man's own heart. And he turns away from Jesus. And the scripture says that his face felt he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now why? Why was he so sad? Why did he go away? Why did his face fall, no doubt because of what Jesus didn't say to him. He was expecting Jesus to affirm his entrance into the kingdom of heaven, not only his entrance into the kingdom of God, but he was expecting Jesus to affirm his way into the kingdom because he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've already done all the requisites. I've already done all the things I know to do. But Jesus, if there's anything at all lacking in me, just tell me and I will do it. So he's expecting Jesus to give him something doable to do so that then he can inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition of words? Do to inherit. When you think about inheriting, you think about being born into a family. Inheritance comes from the word heritage. It means you're somehow connected to the one who's died, who's giving the inheritance. You don't do to be due an inheritance. You're born into. Well, hang on to that. But anyway, he 
he goes away sad because Jesus doesn't affirm him. Jesus doesn't say, oh yes, this is exactly the right way into the kingdom. All you have to do is do this and then you will. He gives him something that for this man is impossible to do because he loves his great wealth. So he goes away sad, no doubt, because Jesus doesn't satisfy him. Jesus doesn't do, Jesus doesn't speak what he thinks Jesus should tell him. But he also goes away sad because of what Jesus does say to him. Because you see, when Jesus looks into this man's heart, and Jesus knew the hearts of men, when Jesus looked into this man's heart, he said, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. You have treasure on earth and you're really impressed with that, but, but really, if you want what's really valuable, if you want really treasure in heaven, heavenly treasure, eternal value stuff, then here's what you need to do. And then he says, then you need to come and follow me. And you see, when Jesus said that, he cut the man to the quick because you see, it isn't simply a matter of doing, it's a matter of the heart. Do you remember when Jesus was asked what was, what is the greatest commandment? He said this. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second commandment is like the first, that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. That is to say that the essence of the commandments and the essence of obeying the commandments isn't necessarily simply the external doing of them, but it's the heart of them. It's doing them out of a heart that loves, that loves God and that loves others. In fact, that's exactly the way the Ten Commandments, interestingly enough, is, uh, are set up. The first four commandments deal explicitly with our love to God. The last six more explicitly with our love under God, but our love for our neighbor, our love for each other. Think about that, and that's how it pans out. So Jesus was saying, okay, I'm going to summarize the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, see, when he comes to this man, this rich man, in essence, he says to him, if you really obey these commandments, then you're one who loves. So let me test that heart. Let me test that love. Were you just doing this as a deed, or you were doing this out of love? Because if you're doing this out of love for your neighbor, then it shouldn't trouble you to sell all that you have and give it to them, give it to the poor. That's, a, that's the supreme loving act. That should resonate with your own heart. Is exactly the thing to do. And if you know who I am, when I say, follow me, then you're doing this by my bidding out of love for God. And so you're fulfilling the commandment really from the heart that you're loving your neighbor and that you're loving God. And this man went away sad because all of his doing was not coming from love for neighbor but love and love for God. And you see, he went away sad because Jesus cut him right to the heart of the matter. Because you see, this, this command that he gives this man to sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow Jesus is not a normative command. By that I mean it's not something that the Bible says we all must necessarily do. There's no vow of poverty that a person takes when they become a Christian necessarily. There is no asceticism that says things are bad or consumption is evil or money is horrible. But for this particular man, this was obviously the very thing that, that caught his heart. This is really his very treasure. Now, for many of us, it may be money that keeps us from the kingdom of God. It may be money in which we depend and money which we value so much that we stay away from the kingdom. But for others, it might be one's intellect. 
one's own thinking. That you think, well, I know the way into the kingdom of heaven, and this is the way. God helps those who help themselves. Thus, I'm going to do the best I can. I suspect God will take care of the rest. That's my philosophy of life. Or I'm going to be Buddhist, or I'm going to be Islam, or whatever it happens to be. This is the way I think it's right in the kingdom and right to enter the kingdom. But you know what Jesus says to us, every single one of us? He says, now I want you to take all of your thoughts about the kingdom of God. I want you to take all of your thinking about God and I want you to set it aside. And I want you to sell that, if you will. And I want you to come to me and submit your mind to me, to trust me that I'm right about the kingdom of God and think my thoughts about the kingdom of God and come and follow me. For some, they may be trusting in their own goodness, as this man obviously was trusting in his, in his own goodness. If, I, if I'm good enough, then obviously, then I'll be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And so we're trusting our goodness. We're certainly better than other people, best we can figure, and we're the ones that really matter. So we like doing that kind of figuring. And therefore, surely I'll be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And when we come to Jesus, he says, Now I want you to take your goodness, and I want you to set it aside. I want you to take your goodness and all your good deeds and all those things which you think should qualify you for entrance into the kingdom. I want you to set them aside because they're not valuable in this regard. I want you to set them aside, and I want you to come to me, and I want you to receive from me my goodness. And then you will have goodness from heaven this great treasure of goodness from heaven working in you. Others may trust their heritage. They think, oh, well, I grew up in a Christian family. My, my grandparents were Christians. My parents were Christians. I'm, I'm a shoe-in, you see, because of my heritage. The Apostle Paul thought that of himself. He thought it was on the basis of his own heritage, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He was trained under the best Jewish rabbis. And so he thought, well, my heritage is what will we'll get in. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to take your heritage and I want you to set it aside. I don't want you to bring that with you because that won't help you. I want you to come and rely upon my heritage. I want you to come and rely upon who I am and what I've done and trust in me and me alone. And then you will receive the treasure of being a child of God. Set all this other aside and come to me. Unless you see, there's, there's always these things which we rely upon other than Jesus. Because I read this, and I, I'm curious as to why Jesus just didn't say, when the man said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why Jesus just didn't say, trust me. Believe in me. Remember when Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, and they were miraculously set free from, from their shackles from prison, and the jailer who was watching them came to Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Same question. They didn't say, go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and go follow Jesus. They simply said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I wonder, why didn't Jesus just, you know, quote John 3.16 to them? He knew it. <laughs> you know? Could have just said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There you go. Just believe in me. Why did he say to this guy, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Why didn't he say, trust me? He did. Jesus said, trust me. 
He said, don't trust this other stuff. Don't trust your riches. Don't bring that with you. Trust my word. Trust that my treasures, the treasure of forgiveness of sins, the treasure of reconciliation with God, the treasure of being adopted into his family, the treasure of having access to him, the treasure of having eternal life, trust my treasure is more valuable than your treasure. Trust that. And then come. Leave all that beside. And come and follow me. He said, trust me. That's the way Jesus always said, trust me. Jesus always said, trust me, by first saying, don't trust that. Don't trust anything else. Don't trust yourself, but trust me. In fact, Jesus could say this in very dramatic fashion. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this in verse 37. He says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's saying, listen, trust me. Love me. Don't love anything more. Don't trust anything more. Trust, love me. Uh, in Luke, in chapter 9, for instance, Jesus is speaking to another group of people. In verse 57, we read this, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus replied. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have the nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, that is to say, understand where you're following. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back says, fit for service in the kingdom of God. That is to say, if you want to follow me, follow me. Set all that aside. And I'll even use dramatic language. I'll even shock you into realizing what it means to really follow me. He said to this man, trust me. Don't trust your riches. He says to the man trusting his own mind, don't trust your mind. Don't trust your intellect. Trust me. He says to the person trusting their goodness, don't trust your goodness. Trust me. He says to the man trusting his heritage, don't trust that. Come to me. Get it from me. Trust me. Put all that aside. This man went away sad because Jesus didn't affirm his way into the kingdom. He went away sad because he peered right into this man's heart and exposed his sin. Because you see, the, the problem of this man was not an intellectual one. It wasn't that he didn't know that one thing more he needed to do. The problem was a problem of the heart. The problem was the problem of the heart, his sin, which kept him from trusting Jesus and coming to Jesus, not as a rich man, but as a little child. Not as one who had everything but as one who was utterly dependent upon all that Christ would give. Not one who thought everything was just fine except for a little tweaking, but a man who realized that everything was wrong and he utterly needed to be saved. This man went away sad because he didn't understand value. He made a very, very illogical choice because he didn't understand real value. When Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said this about treasure. This is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. 
Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This man's heart was exposed because Jesus revealed his treasure. But you see, his treasure was a temporal one. His treasure was going to get eaten up. His treasure was going to rust away. But he missed the very point of the great treasure of the kingdom, the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. You know, the very, very, I think, sobering words of Mark chapter 8 and verse 36. Jesus says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. And you see, that's what this man was doing. He was, he was in the balance. He was, he was looking at his, at his treasure, gaining the whole world, getting a great estate. But he was doing that at the jeopardy of his own soul because he was relying, he was trusting in that. And so he didn't really know value, and so he went away sad. You know, the old story about the man who's He's dying and he goes to his wife and he says, when I die, make sure this briefcase is handcuffed to my wrist, even when I'm in the coffin, because I'm going to take this with me. She complies. He dies. She handcuffs. She handcuffs. Harold knows this. We're in trouble. Handcuffs this briefcase to his wrist. He dies, he goes to the proverbial pearly gates. He meets the gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper says, you can come in, but you have to leave the briefcase. He says, no, I've got to bring the briefcase. This is really important, really valuable. I need to bring this in. I won't be happy without it. The gatekeeper tries to appeal to him and says, no, 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 we have everything in abundance. Whatever you need, you'll have in abundance as soon as you come in. He says, no, I've got to bring this. So the gatekeeper says, what could be so valuable that you need to bring it in with you in heaven? They open the briefcase, it's filled with gold. And the gatekeeper says, you brought pavement? (laughs) You see, what we think is of such great value, heaven is simply paved with, you see. We get it wrong. So Jesus says, no, 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 no. Understand what's really valuable. Forgiveness of sins can't be bought. It's priceless. Reconciliation with God can't be bought by you. You can't do that. You don't have enough for that. So leave it all behind and receive it like a child. Be dependent upon God for it. Having access to God is not something you can bring, something of your own and and, and purchase. Trust me, Jesus says, with that. Eternal life is not something you can do. It's not something you can buy. And so this man, you see, went away sad because he loved his wealth. How tragic is that? Perhaps one of the most vivid, tragic illustrations that Jesus used was that story he told about the rich man and the poor man, the rich man and this poor man named Lazarus, you remember? And the rich man would throw elegant parties and Lazarus, when he was alive, would would come and just pick up the crumbs around the rich man's table and the rich man would never share and Lazarus would go on. Both men die. Lazarus, in essence, goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. 
The rich man finally realizes that he has wrongly valued everything in life. And so he appeals to the poor man, to Lazarus. He says, it's so tormenting here. It's so horrible here. We just dip your finger in some water and just touch it to my parched lips. But the chasm between heaven and hell is so great that that can't take place. And so understanding his folly, the rich man says, says to Lazarus, well, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers not to be the way that I was. Go tell my brothers so they can escape this torment. Of course, the word of Christ comes. They won't believe, not even if one rises from the dead. And so you see the, the horrible results, the horrible results of trusting in one's own treasure. It just brings sorrow. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, I was thinking first about teenagers, about junior and senior high kids. And I was thinking about the great temptation to turn away from Jesus, the great temptation to be lured by all the stuff in the world, the popularity and the sports and even academics and, 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 and all of that, relationships, and all of those issues that tempt young people, the tempt junior high and senior high kids away from following Christ. And the bottom line to all of that, whether it appears so much at the moment or not, is sorrow. That when you turn away from Jesus, you've turned away from all hope. I think of parents who are at that point of temptation of thinking, I'm just going to give up. I'm not going to parent these kids anymore. I'm just going to let them go. They realize, no, don't do that. Keep bringing them to Jesus. Keep, keep, keep turning to him. Keep going to him. Keep following him. Don't, don't turn away because when we turn away, there's only sorrow. You've left your only hope. I think of, of marriages, of husbands and wives when, when it's difficult, really difficult, and you're, and you're ready to throw in the towel and you're ready to just give up. And even though you hear Jesus saying, no, 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 come to me, follow me in this, trust me in this. And you go, no, I just can't. And you turn away. We have to realize when we turn away from Jesus, the end result is only sorrow. We leave our only hope. And all those kinds of instances. But whatever did Jesus mean when in verse 22 he looks around, verse 23, he looks around and says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What he was essentially saying there, it's impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Think of it for a minute. Think of a camel. Think of a needle. Think of threading that needle with a camel. You need more than a steady hand and a good eye. It's just impossible. Now, do you understand the implications of that? The implications of that is probably, if that's really literally true, that it's impossible for a rich man, there's no hope for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we're all lost here, pretty much. I mean, relatively speaking, we are rich. Nobody hanging around with Jesus that day had hot running water, air conditioning, internet. Hmm. What we have is unfathomable. And so the disciples were really curious about all of this. And they began to generalize even away from the rich man's situation that Jesus speaks to. And they said, well, then who can be saved? Now, you'd expect Jesus to say, then, the poor can be saved. 
The rich can't be saved. Somebody's got to be saved. So the poor can be saved. But he doesn't say that. Well, then you think maybe he's going to say, well, okay, let me back off this a bit. The rich who don't trust in their riches can be saved as long as they trust in me. He doesn't say that either. He says, what's impossible with men is possible with God, which is to say, generalized, it's impossible for us to be saved without a work of God. He says, he says don't get too much down on this rich man. I wasn't giving him a doable thing. I know his heart. His heart is so encased. His heart is so bound to his riches that I know precisely, if I would have told him to, to stand on his head for an hour and a half, he would have done it. If I would have told him to go and give a blessing to a small child, he would have done it. If I would have gone and said, do 200 hours of community service, he would have done it. But I knew the one thing that he couldn't do and wouldn't do, the thing that was bound in his heart so I could illustrate to you that salvation, entering into eternal life, is utterly impossible for you. But it's not impossible for God. Therefore, in whom should you hope? Should you hope in yourself, your riches, your intellect, your goodness? Or should you hope in God? What you have is impossible to get you there. You must trust in him. And we know, we know that it's impossible for us to obey the law in such a way from the heart that we can please God and enter innocently, enter perfectly into the kingdom of God. We know we've all sinned. And we know, therefore, that none of us can earn our salvation. But we know that Jesus came and lived perfectly. So what was impossible for us is possible for him. And so we trust in him. We also know it's impossible for us to pay the debt of our sin. If you and I go around paying the debt of our sin, that will take us all of eternity, which we'd really like a better deal. It takes all of eternity to pay off one's sin. It takes all of eternity in hell to pay off one's sin. And all of eternity lasts forever. So it never gets done. It's impossible for us to pay the penalty for our sin, but we know that wasn't impossible for God. It wasn't impossible for Jesus. He paid the full extent of our penalty. So we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in him. But not only that. He says, you need to come to me in humility and dependence. You need to come to me desiring me. You need to come to me as a child would come. And that too is impossible. It was impossible for this rich man because he was so bound in his sin. And God says, the only way you can come to me is by way of me working in your heart. That my salvation, your salvation, God says, is my work from beginning to end. And why is that true? Because of the nature of our sin. It's so pervasive that it affects everything about us and it binds us in it. We become bound to our sin, thus we're bound to sin. We're going to sin. And the scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we're completely separated from life. We're dead. And the Bible says that our minds, naturally speaking, are hostile towards God. So how can we come back to life? How can we lose this hostility? What can really change about us to make that happen? And God says, that's impossible for you. You're bound in that. You're enslaved in that. You're dead in that. 
Only God can do that. And so when he says come as a little child, he really means that. We must be born anew. We must enter into his kingdom by way of a new birth. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Great teacher of the law comes to Jesus. Right, we'll turn to that. I love this uh, story. John chapter 3. I think it's hilarious. The way it goes on. John chapter 3 verse 2. He, that is Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night, coward, at night and said, smart people do that, you know. They don't like to raise their hand in class because it shows their ignorance. So he came to Jesus at night. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I'm Nicodemus, I'm thinking, how'd you get there, Jesus? <laughs> how did you know? That's really what was on my mind. I'm sure I'm playing with you here. I just, you know, I want to show, whew, you get right down to it. But you see, that's the truth. Nicodemus, in essence, was thinking there must be something he could do, must be something he could simply learn, because he was a Pharisee after all. So if he could just be given this thing to do, then, then he would be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no, it's not like that. There's something must happen in your heart before you can see it. You must be born anew. You must have a new heart, a new disposition of life, a new understanding of life. That has to happen. And you understand that conception is impossible for the one conceived. You've gotten that far. You understand that, that conception happens apart from you. That when you were born, it wasn't your idea. That's why I always tell my children on their birthdays, they should bring me a present and their mother. I mean, it wasn't their idea. It's not like it was a big deal on their part that they were born. Congratulations. Um, see, they didn't conceive themselves. They didn't give birth to themselves. They just sort of came dependent as little children into the world breathing. And Jesus says, that's the way life in the kingdom is. It's impossible for you. It's impossible for you to conceive yourself. It's impossible for you to give birth to yourself. That's why Jesus uses that image. And so you have to come as a little child dependent and independent on God for everything, to do the conceiving, to do the work of grace, the mysterious, sovereign, wonderful work of grace, that grace that we only know that's happened because we start breathing spiritually. Children only know they're born when they start breathing, when they start crying, when there's signs of life. And so we enter into the kingdom with signs of life, which is repentance and faith. Somehow, a work of God must have to happen so that we set aside our riches and our, our goodness and all of that and come and follow Jesus. Come and follow him. Ephesians in chapter 2 says it. Well, before we get there, turn to John in chapter 6. Just one more. John chapter 6 and verse 44. Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is to say, it's impossible for you. I've got to do the drawing. My Father's got to bring you to me. And then in verse 64, he says, Yet there are some of you, that is Judas, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, that is why, this is why, I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. It takes a work of God to enable us. So Jesus could look at his disciples and say, don't be too hard on this rich guy. I gave him the undoable. I gave him the impossible. He couldn't trust me because of his sin, and neither could you. 
The only way a rich man can enter into the kingdom of heaven is if God changes his heart. The only way a poor man can enter into the kingdom of heaven is if God changes his heart. That's true for everyone. It's generalized for all people. Because with men, all men, rich or poor, with men it's impossible. But with God, it's impossible. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, he says it so wonderfully well, so dramatically well. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4, we read this, But, as we were dead, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. That's that life-giving grace. That's that sovereign grace. That's that born-again-making grace. You were dead. How does a dead person become alive? Well, by definition, they have no hope in themselves. The reason being, they're dead. Lazarus, when he was in the tomb, was dead. In fact, the Bible says he's been dead four days. The old King James translates it and says, He stinketh. It's rather nice way of putting it. He did stinketh. Lazarus, at that point, in terms of being alive, was utterly hopeless and helpless. He could only become alive if a life giver came. And the life giver came, and he spoke his name, and he came forth. And the life giver comes and God, Jesus says, it's impossible with you. But when the life giver speaks your name and you come alive. So what do we make of this? Well, first this, if you're a believer in Christ, you should worship all the time. Because what has happened in your life is that the life giver has come and he has spoken your name and he's given you life and you've been born again so that you could enter into the kingdom as a child, dependent, believing. You saw your dependence upon riches or goodness or whatever it was. You saw that that was wrong. You saw that was invaluable. You saw that was sin. And you cast it aside and came and followed Jesus. You're no better than the man who, the rich man who went away sad. The only difference between the two is that for whatever reason, known only to God, he spoke your name. And you said yes. I'll set my treasure aside and I'll come and follow you. So, worship. Live with a great sense of assurance. Because what God has done, God does. And so know that every time you're tempted and every time you find things in your life that seem to be keeping you from following Christ and you realize they're keeping you from following Christ, no matter how hard the struggle, rejoice to know that it is a struggle. And rejoice to know that what you really desire is to be able to give it up, to be able to cast it aside. And you'll pray and you'll work and you'll do whatever you can in order to cast it aside because you really do know that you must follow Christ. And then, of course, make sure that you understand that this not only applies to you, but it applies to others. So for everyone you know who doesn't know Christ, pray for them because you understand they're in an impossible situation. They're in a hopeless situation. They're in a helpless situation. That their only hope is that God will do for them what is impossible for them. That is to say, he'll change their heart. So if your hope was in them, then give up. Watch TV. Eat bonbons. But if your hope is in God, pray for them. 
because he can do what they need. Not only pray for them, but, but share with them the word confidently. Share with them the scripture confidently. Why? Why? Because, because what they can't do, God can. And even though you're giving them undoable things to do, things they can't do, they can't trust, but keep giving them the word. Why? Because in the midst of that, God has said that's his means to bring life. And so lay it out there. Lay it out there in prayer. Lay it out there confidently. Lay it out there persuasively. Lay it out there lovingly for them to hear. Keep sowing that seed so they will hear. And if you're not a believer, and I've just told you that it's impossible for you to believe, (laughs) don't be discouraged. Because your hope shouldn't be in you anyway. It should be in God. So go to him and say, I've just been told I need to believe, but I can't. Oh, God, I'm in a bigger fix than I thought. I just thought that like on Tuesday or Thursday or a year and a half from now, I could just believe, but I guess I can't. So I need you. So I'm coming to you and laying my life before you and to be utterly dependent upon you. Please help me. Please cause me to believe. Please please give me new life that I may come to you as a child so that I may trust you. This rich young man pitiful man. But we mustn't ever give up hope. I don't Somebody asked me once, do you think the rich young ruler ever became a Christian? I don't know. <laughs> I love the questions I get. Like, sure, yeah, I remember. I was there, actually. Uh, I led him to Christ. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But, but, but he could have. Even after this situation. Why? Because, because he's no different than the rest of us. And if we've come, then surely... It, Perhaps God would change his heart and he would come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy to us. May we never, ever take it for granted, but always worship, always be in awe, because who can be saved? How could I ever be saved? But Lord, I thank you that you are gracious and kind. And so... I give you praise for our salvation. And I pray for those who have yet to come to faith, that you would bless them in such a way as to draw them to yourself, as to change their hearts, as to enable them to come and believe. So they may come too utterly dependent upon you and giving you all the glory and trusting you only. And for all of us, Father, there's stuff that comes into our lives all the time. And we have to keep... Uh, re-upping, if you will, keep thinking this through and realizing, no, I mustn't depend upon this, and no, I mustn't depend upon that. I must depend upon Christ alone. So help us. Reveal to us, God, all those things, whether it be money or intellect or goodness or heritage or passions, whatever it is that's maybe keeping us from wholly trusting in Jesus, I pray you would reveal those to us, enable us to repent of them and to walk with you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our time together on Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock, please come. Um, I remind you, too, of, um, of uh, uh, elders being available to pray in the, in the office area, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction this morning is, I will follow Jesus, amen. Now, when you say, I will follow Jesus, you, you know that's a very pregnant expression a lot it means I'm not going to follow other stuff I'm not going to follow other other ways I'm not going to follow myself I'm not going to trust I'm going to leave that all behind 
and I'm going to follow Jesus. And when you say amen, you're saying yes. That's the very desire of my heart. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us all that is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, I will follow Jesus. Amen.